I want you to tell me what is the best and worst parts of your job. Of being a pastor? Mm-hmm. Um, having difficult convers- having conversations like this is the worst. <laughs> <don't you? laughs> Good answer. Welcome to How They Did It with me, Darby Worley. This is a show where I sit down with extraordinary people about this thing called life and how to do it better. Today on the show is a pastor from Texas named Michael Perrin. Now, Michael and I used to teach aerobics together back when group fitness classes were called aerobics um, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. And if you are old enough, as I am, to remember the Abs of Steel and Buns of Steel videos, Michael was one of the Abs of Steel guys. And then he went through kind of a rough patch and became a pastor. So when we reconnected on Facebook 20, 30 years after our original meeting, I was curious to hear how that happened. So that's the show today. Oh, and I'm going to say one more thing about this. So Michael's a pastor and... Lots of times, pastors are very conservative people. I'd say that that's probably true about Michael. And so I feel I'm always a little bit concerned about walking that line between what my very liberal, bleeding heart, lefty, progressive values and talking to somebody who is conservative. I want to challenge those beliefs and have a, and have a conversation that matters, but also be respectful of that person's beliefs. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure if I succeeded this time. So um, my gay friends, especially, I hope I didn't let you down. But take a listen. I think it's I think it's a valuable conversation. All right, cool. So um, we are we are live rolling. So joining me now is Michael Perrin. Michael Perrin. When I knew Michael Perrin uh, years ago, (laughs) like maybe. (laughs) 30 years ago, we were both um, teaching group fitness at a place called The Sweatshop in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. And now I know that Michael is a pastor. And are you in Dallas? Yes, in Dallas, Texas. So I moved here, geez, about 23 years ago. Okay, cool. I hear a little little Texas in that voice now. Somewhat, but I can get the Minnesota accent back real quick. So the first question that I ask everybody on this show is, um, did you know that you wanted to be a pastor when you were a little boy? That's a great question. Yeah, I think with everything, when you're growing up, there's a lot of ideas about who you want to be or what you want to become. Being a pastor was not something that I was real familiar with because I wasn't raised in a church that had what a lot of people know as pastors. I was raised in a church that had people called priests. And so it was a little different for me at the age of 10, thinking about, you know, these priests and what they do. Um, But, you know, looking back on it, there was this idea that I had in my mind that it might not be a bad idea to be a priest, but Mm. the thing that I couldn't get over was, well, what about not having a family? And what about, excuse me, not having children? Yeah. So that was something that I just kind of put in the back of my mind, and it, it sat there for a very, very long time. But to answer your question straight up, no, I really didn't want to be a pastor. Yeah. What did What did you want to be? What kind of things did you like doing when you were when you were young? You know, that's another good question as well. Um, I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed athletics. So there was this fantasy of being a professional athlete at some point in time. There's also the idea of stepping into the shoes of your father. Uh, my dad was, and still is, a really a neat man. Uh, he's a tax attorney, still in Burnsville, Minnesota. So there was a thought about, you know, becoming a lawyer, you know, or a doctor or things like that. But again, when you're 
10, 11, 12, 13 years old, um, you just wake up the next morning and something else has piqued your interest. And that's kind of what you want to become at, on that particular day. Yeah. So I was I was talking to um, my partner in this venture about your interview, and I'm like, yeah, this is the guy, this guy that I used to know when we were, you know, we taught aerobics together way back back when it was called aerobics, and now he's a pastor. Right. And her response was, she goes, well, you know, when a story starts with fitness and ends in uh, any kind of spiritual venture, there's usually addiction somewhere in the middle. <laughs> well, that is. <laughs> That is a very wise, sage advice from her. And yeah, there is, there was a level of addiction in the middle of that whole endeavor. You know, I started back in fitness, like I said, playing sports and athletics through school and through high school. Um, Managed to, you know, make it into a college and continue to play athletics there as well, but then got injured. And my sports career for the, what I imagined it to be was pretty much over. So, um, Changed geographically, moved to another city, uh, continued on with school there, and then managed to find myself in the throes of, you know, um, it, it wasn't a full-blown addiction at that time. It was really probably a little bit too much going out on the weekends, a little bit <clears throat> too much drinking possibly during the week, but nothing that I would qualify as a full-blown addiction so but there how, were hints so how, this time I, that you're talking about right now like how old were you yeah. then were you like in your late teens early 20s like i was probably in my 18 19 20 years old okay and like anything you know um it's nobody starts out waking up one morning and saying to themselves you know i'm going to become an addict mm. it's a gradual increase in the amount it's a gradual increase in the irresponsibility And it's a gradual increase. What I like to say is I continue to believe the lie and that lie gained more and more power over my life. You know, if you believe the lie, you give power to the liar, obviously. And so what I needed, what I continued to do was perpetuate this lie that, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that big of a deal. And inevitably, eventually, and we're going to fast forward, way fast forward, I found myself strung out on methamphetamine at two o'clock in the morning. But to get there, it wasn't as though I woke up, you know, and said, hey, I'm going to be a junkie and be addicted to drugs. But slowly but surely, it kind of finds its way into your life. I don't think anybody says, even meth addicts, I don't think anybody ever says, you know what? I think doing meth, that's 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 something I should do today. That sounds like a really smart move. Like nobody says that, right? I Well, I, I can't imagine anybody saying that on the front end. That's for sure. But for me, you know, with fitness, it was a really unique a really unique thing because got involved, like I said, we taught aerobics together in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it was fantastic. Then I moved to California after that to compete in what was then uh, the Reebok National Aerobic Championship. Mm. And so it was a, a national event that was televised on ESPN, and they had guys competing in aerobics and managed to do well in the competition. But moreover than that, got involved in a group, a fitness group out in California for Voight Fitness, which at the time, back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, late 80s actually, was the premier spot, if you will, to teach aerobics. Mm. So I thought I had it made. Um, I was making money. I had friends. I was living out in California. I was single. I was you know, partying somewhat on the weekends, maybe a little bit too much here and there. And for me, it was kind of living the dream. 
Now, is I this before or moved, after I knew you? This is after you knew me. After. Now, were you like so, were yeah. you doing drugs and stuff when we when you were at the sweatshop when I knew you? There was a little bit of that going on. Now, it yeah. wasn't. Again, you know, we addicts do a pretty darn good job of hiding a lot of a lot of the difficulties that we find ourselves in. And so, yeah, there was some of that going on, not the hardcore stuff, maybe, you know, a little bit more of the alcohol and the, um, now I say hardcore alcohol is a hardcore drug that mm-hmm. please, if your listeners are listening to this, I don't want anybody thinking for a second that when I speak of alcohol is not a hardcore drug, I'm saying, Oh, it's not that big of a deal because it's a, it's just as devastating as any other drug as well for the lack of a better term. But when I say hardcore, I mean, you know, things that you smoke or shoot into your veins. But when I was with you at the sweatshop, yeah, I mean, there was alcohol abuse going on. There was smoking dope probably was happening, smoking Mm -hmm. weed um, and those types of things. But again, it was this gradual crawl towards, I just need a little bit more. I just need to feel, feel a little bit different. And uh, after our time in St. Paul, like I said, moved to California mm-hmm. and was living the dream for the most part, traveling the world, teaching aerobics. And I was uh, what you would call, you know, the star of the show, if you will, yeah. to, you know, what, whether it be Sweden or Denmark or Portugal, you know, teaching aerobics to 1,200 to 1,500 people. So it was weren't probably you, the, you best, the abs of steel guy for a while too. Yeah, that came, that actually came after. So, okay. so I, I moved, moved to Texas after that endeavor in California. And again, my issue for me was I didn't necessarily get in trouble in California, mm-hmm. but I thought a geographical change would make a difference. I thought maybe if I just move, I won't be so habitually addicted to alcohol or drugs or ecstasy. Maybe if I just change my environment, yeah. I'll change. I moved from Texas to New York City to get away from a party lifestyle. I always joke that I moved to New York City to get some sleep because Texas is... Now that's that's just such a... Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, oxymoronic I have, statement. <laughs> I may have been there at the same time that you were there. I lived there from 97 to 2001. I was in Austin. Oh, yeah. And yeah, Austin's, you were here. Oh, Austin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Austin's a party town. Um, it so, can be. But again, like I said, any any town's a party town as yeah. long as I find myself there. Just like exactly to your point. So I changed geographically, but that didn't change anything because I brought myself with me. Yeah. And so it may have been a different zip code, but the person was still the same. And I was searching, you know, I was searching for this void, this emptiness that I tried to fill. I didn't know what it was. It wasn't like I grew up in a bad household. Yeah. I had a loving father, a loving mom that are still married. I had a younger sister. Mm-hmm. I mean, were there issues? Yeah. I mean, I think every family, for the most part, goes through or has to endure something. But if you would look at my life, you would say, that's pretty leave it to beaver as far as mm-hmm. the white picket fence living in the suburbs. You know, the dad who's a lawyer, maybe he worked too much. Nah, I don't think so. But the whole point is I was trying to fill this void and I was using whatever I could, whether it was drugs, whether it was girlfriends, you name it. It was trying to fill the void that that can only be filled by what I came to find out later was God. But yeah, I moved to Texas, get hooked up with um, with people here and continue the same lifestyle. You were still teaching fitness or what? Like what were you still teaching group fitness? 
yeah, I was still teaching group fitness and then personal training people as well. And so the girl I moved here for, we had a falling out. It didn't work real well. And I went to teach group fitness that morning. And this woman uh, showed up at my class. She'd been taking my class for a very long time. In the Darby, she said to me, um, you know, are you happy? And it was just a very profound question that nobody had ever really taken the time to ask me because in kind of in the world that, that we found ourselves in in fitness or fashion or any type of world in which it's about how you look, many times people really don't care how you are. Mm. But this lady asked me just a real pointed question. Are you happy? And I looked at her and for a moment of clarity, I said, you know, I'm really not. And she said, you know, I can't promise you happiness, but what I, what I could promise you is hope. And I thought, well, that'd be really nice. And she went on to share with me, you know, her version of, of what she believed gave her hope. And it was a gospel presentation. And if anybody's ever been to a church or maybe the listeners haven't ever heard what a gospel presentation is, it's this idea that everybody falls short, everybody sins in the world, and those sins prevent um, a relationship with, you know, what I believe is a holy God, and all the religions believe in an an entity or a deity that is holy and above themselves. A lot of religions approach God from the perspective of trying to earn his love and earn his trust through works or through being a good person or through uh, doing various types of uh, religious activities. But this God that she shared with me was a God that what required was faith. Mm. And that was it. No works associated with it. And she said, it's a matter of putting your faith and trust in this God and his son, who she mentioned which was Jesus Christ. And I thought it just, it can't be that easy. You know, you just can't like mm. Wrinkle, you know, wrinkle your nose or wave a magic wand, and all of a sudden you're going to have hope because you put faith in this person, Jesus Christ. And I said to her, you know, thank you for that, but I'm, I kind of said, I'm happy in my misery. You know, it was really <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot for the, thanks a lot for asking me a pointed question and trying to speak into my life, but I'm going to keep my misery with me. Well, it's funny, I think you know, there's what, a little what pride. I remember, what I remember about you, I remember you being this like yeah. super charismatic. Um, very talented kind of public presence, but I, you always struck me as, as, um, unsatisfied. I don't know that I'd say that I thought you were unhappy, but un, unsatisfied with where you were at. So my question, so I, I assume this, this story ends with you accepting Christ and kind of coming into a place where you, you feel saved and, and, and finding this, this great new job. Um, when I don't, that's, that, that sounds too shallow, but this great purpose for your life. Um, right. So do you feel satisfied now? And did you, like, did, I did, was, was that something that you were conscious of? I don't think I was going for satisfaction. I think I was going for, um, to your point, I was thinking I was going for more of a, a in lines of fulfillment, mm. you know, something that would give me purpose, something that would transcend, um, what I saw as, you know, this temporal reality that we all live in. Mm. And I think that's what I think what everybody for the most part, searches for. They search for legacy. They search for a a divine purpose that will transcend just their life here on earth. You know, what are you leaving? What are you, 
giving to people after you die and after you're not here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to, I mean, if I could sit rewind for a second, yeah, sure. it, I accepted Christ, but it was after, you know, the attempt to kill myself, um, after going out and partying okay. for three Stop. days. You have to go back and tell yeah. that story. You can't just say that and then move yeah. on. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so this lady shared, okay. So this yeah. lady shared this deal with me about Jesus. And I thought I said, no. And I went out and I started partying three days later after doing cocaine. I was, the life I was living was going to change. Mm-hmm. And I was prepared to end my life with a, with a pistol. And you as I was preparing that whole thing, oh yeah, it was oh, ready to go. Man. I was sitting on my bed and just considering, because you become so remorse, remorseful and so guilty mm. about everything that's going on in your life. And there is no hope. There's just no, there was no hope for me at that time and had the gun the whole bit. And the words of the lady kept on circling through my head. And she said, there's forgiveness in Christ. There's forgiveness in Christ. And I essentially had that moment where I said, I don't know who you are or what you're all about, but if you're real, I need you. And something changed. That's all I can say. Something shifted in my spirit. Now, I want to say that it was pink clouds and bunnies the next, you know, 17 years, but it's far from that because I had to go and make amends to people that I had offended or hurt. I had to uh, repair any type of relationship that I destroyed through my habitual using of drugs. And ultimately I had to come to grips with, you know, there are some things that I did that I'm not proud of and get rid of that shame and that guilt. And that took years, years and years to get over. What was going on Um, with your, with your parents at that time? You know, they had essentially written me off. Hmm. We had a great relationship, you know, Christmas cards, if I happen not to make it home for Christmas, birthday cards, you know, things like that from my folks, just hoping you're okay. But that summer, it was interesting, that summer when my birthday came around, I didn't receive a card from them, and I didn't receive any type of telephone call. And what that really conveyed to me was, I'm kind of dead to them, because I had made these choices, and these choices were really affecting them and their relationship. And that's what happens when somebody's in the throes of addiction is it's the people around them that get affected as well. And then how are things with them now? They've been repaired. Um, You know, God has done for me what I could not do for myself as AA talks about. Mm. And he really has. I mean, there was a point in time in my life where you know, I had this relationship with God and everything was great. I had a falling out with the church that I was going to, and I really got offended by them. And they did some things and said some things to me that uh, I just, I just can't believe would happen. So I left the church because of being offended and some of the things that were being said. Um, this was after and I got hurt. This is after you got. This is after. Yeah. After I accepted Christ. Yeah. After I had that relationship with God. Well, because of what man was doing. I said, "Well, you can keep this Christianity well, thing because say, I think it's say more about that. Like, what are, what were the what were they saying to you that got you uh, got you riled up? Like, what? Yeah, I didn't I don't know how much time we had, but essentially, I was living with a guy. We were staying in a house. I was we were renting out a house together, and I went out and, and drank alcohol. Well, you know, according to this church, you're not supposed to do that, particularly when you're in leadership in this church, and so." I went home, told my roommate about it, and I was broken. You know, I was pretty beat up about the whole thing. But before I had an opportunity to go tell the pastor and go tell the leadership of the church, he told them for me. 
And so they pulled an intervention on me. They had my parents flown down from Minnesota. They had the pastor. They had a few of my friends from the church, and they all said, we think you need to go to treatment for your problem. And remind you, this is like, like a, a one-off Thursday night going out, having a couple beers. It's not right. a full-blown addiction. But I was remorseful and repentant, but I didn't think I needed to go to treatment. And this banter back and forth, yes, you do. No, you don't. Ultimately, I left. I went to work and came back. And they had taken all of my things out of my house that I was renting and put it in the front yard because I wasn't willing to do what they said I should do. See, that's, my that, bed, that is just a stereotype of every asshole Southern church. Like, yeah. seriously, that, like, so, okay, keep going. It's just awful. It's just yeah. awful. And, you know, again, if there's a listener out there and you've been offended by the church like that, I want to tell you something right now. That was not God that did that. Yeah. That was man that did that. God would never kick you out and kick you to the curb like that. So I just want to make sure that's clear. So they made that choice, and I basically said, you can have it. And I made a telephone call to a friend of mine, friend, mm. <laughs> guy I knew, mm. and asked him if I could um, hook up with an eight ball of methamphetamine. And that was the weekend that lasted four and a half years. Wow. Yeah. So four and a half years of methamphetamine addiction uh, was my plight from that point forward. But the world came. You know, like you said, I got called from Time Warner, and they wanted me the, to be the abs of steel guy. I got a call from ESPN, and they wanted me to do a show on the beach, one of those fitness shows. Um, and then I got called from a number of different other organizations, too, and they wanted me to, you know, go to the Today Show, appear on QVC, you know, be on the cover of Men's Fitness magazine. And so it was just the world coming at me again in the throes. Now it's full-blown addiction. Yeah. I'm using speed every single day. Were you snorting it, sniffing, like shooting it? What? How are you consuming it? Um, yes, to answer the question. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and, and leave it all at the that. ways, all the ways. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. again, you you reach a point where it's just never it never satisfied. To your yeah. point, I just I just couldn't find satisfaction. And I got to think too, so like my parents listen to this show, so I'm going to be obtuse here, but I've had a little bit of a go around with not, I've never done math, I'm not, but like I, there are certain drugs that enable you to, that like suppress your appetite and like the, the best body I ever had ever was like the summer of the craziest partying season of my life. Did you experience any of that? Like did, did that, was that part of it at all or? Yeah, that was part of the lie. I mean, the lie that I believed was it, it kept me in shape, it kept me lean, and it kept me active. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's a number of different drugs out there right now that are prescribed. You know, I think, Darby, we got to be real straight up when we talk about drugs, too. We're talking about street drugs for the most yeah. part, but people take prescribed drugs and abuse them just as badly as any other drug. Of course, worse, probably. Yeah, because it's 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 legitimized by yeah. a doctor or by a prescription. So, you know, if if I needed it, if I if I went to that in order to feel different about who I was and abused that, took more than the dosage, that's a problem. That's that's a significant problem. And so, you know, I just ask people to maybe consider that as well. 
Yeah, we're recording this on Prince's birthday. We just lost Prince five weeks ago because of... Yeah, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's unfortunately a, a beautiful, terrible example of what we're talking about. Yeah. And here's a guy who was prescribed opiates, and it eventually took his life. Yeah. Okay, so you're doing methamphetamine every day. You're, like, career-wise, for your fitness career, you're probably at kind of a pinnacle. And so there, that's yeah. a great... Um, What's the contradiction, right? Uh, on the outside, everyone well, thinks you're doing yeah. great. On the inside, you're a mess. <laughs> well, just the hypocrisy, Darby. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about the hypocrisy. <laughs> group fitness, group fitness, be fit, be fit. Oh, wait a minute. I got to go in the bathroom and I got to do a bump of methamphetamine. Sorry, I'll be right back. And then you go back and you start teaching. I mean, your heart rate's like, you know, 220, you know, and you're just off the charts as far as you're almost mm-hmm. dying because your heart's beating so fast. Well, to shorten that story long, I found myself, uh, you know, addicted, strung out, two o'clock in the morning, and this guy that I knew was anywhere but close, so I thought. Mm. Uh, but there was this idea that, you know, I'm dying, and I need to get to, back to the place where I was before with him. Mm. I need to go to church. And so I found a church, a little church that I'd never been to before, and went in, and I put on my best church outfit, if you will, whether it be, you know, the psychological and the emotional and not only the physical, because I still was looking just good, looking just fine. And this lady stood up who I'd never met before. Darwin, this is a crazy, crazy story. So I'm just going to preface that. (laughs) So this lady stands up who I've never met before. And she talks to the pastor and she says, Pastor, I believe God wants to share something with somebody here. And the pastor said, okay. And the pastor gives this lady who's you know probably in her mid eighties, the microphone. And she starts walking through this crowd of about 175 people looking for somebody that God wants to talk to is what she said. And I'm watching her do this thing. And I'm thinking, this is very uh, surreal. Mm-hmm. If, if not very perplexing to me that this lady is going to say something that God wants to share. And then it hit me. She's going to share something with me. You know, there was just this this idea that, oh, my gosh, what in the world am I doing here? I wanted to run as fast as I possibly could. Mm. But before I was able to get out the door, she found me. And Darwin, here's what she said. This, like I said, this lady I'd never met before. I'm strung out on drugs. I've been up till 2 o'clock in the morning using methamphetamine. I was even high because I had done drugs in the bathroom of the church, if you can believe that. And here comes this lady. And she looks at me and she says, young man, God wants you to know that he will restore everything that you've given away if you'll come back to him. What did you do? And I fell on my knees Hmm. and started crying, you know, because I thought to myself, if the God of the universe, who's busy doing other things, can take a moment in time for a strung out junkie in a little bitty church in downtown Dallas, how can you not give him your life? And that's what I did right there. So you asked me, how did I become a pastor? The idea of becoming a pastor was probably put in me about the age of 10 with this idea of being a priest, but I never could come to grips with that. Fast forward, you know, nearly 30 years to a little church in downtown Texas and where God encountered this junkie drug addict. And really it was at that moment I came to a realization, yeah, he wants my life and he wants me to 
be somebody that is able to share hope with others and do it as a vocation. You know, I think, you know, the, the title of pastor to me is, is flattering. I don't usually go around saying that I'm a pastor of a church. What I usually tell people is, um, I'm a broker of hope. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I just, I just want people to know that there's hope, um, because, there's hope for me. There's hope for anybody out there right now, regardless of what you're struggling with. Yeah. Hmm. So you're talking to an atheist, and I, I will admit, I do, I do feel envious of um, people who have an unwavering belief. And I'm, my question is: Do you ever question it? Do you ever have any? Are there ever any doubts, or is that just a, a part of your, like, in the rearview mirror? Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. I, I doubt and I question it. And, be, you know, when you're a pastor of a church and you're doing good things for God and then your eight-year-old son is diagnosed with a brain tumor, you begin to question God mm. and the validity of who he is and what he's all about. When um, he's fine, by the way, he's a, a walking miracle of of the power of prayer and the power of doctors and the power of, you know, g- <laughs> just the nature of the body being able to heal itself. Mm-hmm. He had an inoperable brain tumor, they said. Mm-hmm. Doctor went in, performed the surgery. We did M- we've done MRIs for the last eight years, and there is no indication that the tumor is there, nor can they find any type of hint that it will ever come back again. I mean, it really, he's a walking miracle. Wow. Um, yeah, with, yeah, it's a wow for sure. But you question God in those moments. You question God when you watch... Uh, your mother-in-law suffer and die of Parkinson's disease. And you wonder, where's the mercy in that? Where's the love in that? Where's the compassion of God in, in that? That is appalling. You work with people all the time and the atrocities that people can do to one another. You know, I mean, where's the love and where's the power of God stopping the brutality of a 14 year old girl that you're talking to by her dad? I mean, you just look at these things and you and shake your fist. I mean, I do. And I, and I, and I look at God and I go, what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, why don't you stop any of this stuff? Can't you see the pain that people are going through right now? Mm. And he continues to bring me back to this, this idea and this thought, you know, it's people will say to me, well, I just can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. Mm. And I say to them, Neither can I, because the God that I believe in doesn't send people to hell. Now, you can go to a lot of different religions and a lot of different things, and if you don't do particular things, the workspace religions, you know, do this, do that, go here, do these things, give then you're your going money. to hell. Don't forget to give, give all, all your money. money. <laughs> yeah. If you don't give all your money, if you don't, you know, if you don't travel to these places, if you don't do these certain mitzvahs. I'm not hitting any religion in particular, but what I'm saying is there's always this question that, well, what if I go to purgatory? What if I go to hell? What if I didn't do good enough? And the God I believe in doesn't send people to hell because he says, believe, and that's it. Mm -hmm. The way that people go to hell from the God that I believe is they choose not to believe. Mm -hmm. They're they're the ones making the choice, not God. 
And so I always tell people, I'm like, what can it hurt to believe in a God that, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? You end up going to heaven? I mean, <laughs> meh, you know, you, you live a pretty decent moral life. You know, you, you try not to do wrong to your neighbor. You, you know, you try to be a beneficent and benevolent person. You show compassion to other people. You try to love the unlovely mm. and help people. You know, what... What's the worst thing that could happen yeah, but if I, you believe I, I in a God? That. I do all that. Know? I do all that stuff. But do I? Like, it's the believing in in the like guy up in the sky thing that gets me. But um, right, and, and right. I, don't, I mean, it's I don't mean to say to that me in too. a disparaging way because I absolutely no, no, no. I don't hear that at all. Okay, Trust okay. me. Okay. I've heard a lot worse, Darby. Believe me. <laughs> and the other thing too, and I think too, it's I I get I get caught up. In the, I have so many gay friends, so many LGBT people in my life. It's really me hard too. for me to. to I, what's your church's and your personal stance on that? I can't. I can't judge and determine whether or not somebody's going to go to heaven or go to hell. That's mm-hmm. not for me to judge. I'm not God. I can love people mm-hmm. and I can explain to them what I believe. You know, the Bible says about partic- certain particular things. Yeah. Um, but for me to stand in judgment over somebody. I just don't have the bandwidth to do that, Darby. Yeah. We have pe- we have gay people that attend our church right now. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, that's that's the kind of church we have. It's a real life mm-hmm. church. I mean, I've got tattoos all over my body. So oh, I mean, it's cool. it's a very real life, straightforward. You know, this is the truth. This is the God that I know. This is the love that He has for you. Now you decide. That's what we do. I mean, we just allow people opportunity to choose. Yeah. I can't you, make somebody believe in God. You know. Would you be allowed to to perform a same sex wedding? You know, that's that's something that somebody's asked me to do and I and I I personally am choosing not to do that. Yeah. And that's that's based upon what I believe. Now that doesn't mean that I, I don't I, I don't come against one, other would your church let one be performed in the building? In the building itself? Yeah. Um well we lease up yeah, probably. You know, it's one of those deals where we've never really asked anybody to have that happen. Now watch, yeah. we'll get about 37 calls. <laughs> Will you let me do it? <laughs> a gay church. It would, it, I, think it, I think we'd really have, to, really have to weigh out the pros and the cons because here's, here's another thing. Simply because I'm not judgmental over that doesn't mean that other people aren't. Mm. And so I would never want to do anything to cause harm to, uh, to anybody that currently you know, believes or attends the church that, that we have mm-hmm. and cause them to, to, to question um, what, what we're doing. You know, again, the Bible is pretty clear about everything we're talking about. And I go with the word of God and the truth of God's word as far as it pertains to, you know, husband, wife and those types of things. But listen, I'm a recovered drug addict. And you would you would think so. I have, I have mercy for people who are um, who are not what a lot of churches would take in because I was shown mercy. You know, it's the love of God that draws us into repentance, not the fire and brimstone message of turn or you're going to hell. That's never been what Jesus has been about. Never, ever been what Jesus has been about. But there are some, you know, parameters that I think every, that, that we need to live in and, you know, you don't steal you don't murder. You don't do a variety of different things. Now, if you do, there's always forgiveness for those things. But there are some choices I think that that we as people need to come to grips with. I have an uncle who um, is 
has a lover and they and they've been together for over 30 years. I love him to death and I love his his friend to death as well. I I've never come against him. I've never said anything disparaging. We hang out at Christmas and it's just a wonderful wonderful thing. Do I do I judge him? No, I don't judge him. Yeah. I, why would I do that? I love my uncle. He's my uncle for crying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I love his friend, you know? So I'm not going to stand in judgment over the, mm. over anybody. That's just not for me to do, Darby. Yeah, I have hope. I, you know, there's, a, there's um, a friend of mine is getting married next month in a Lutheran church in Minnesota, and the pastor there is performing the ceremony. They, um, it, you know, the Lutherans are not quite there yet on same-sex marriage, just like it sounds like maybe your church isn't. But they right. decided to let their church their church body take a vote, and it was unanimous to approve the ceremony, which I just find like. I don't know. I feel like progress, things are changing, and I have hope. Um, awesome. That, that someday maybe it will be looked at. Do you think it's possible? Like when you when you say that the word of God is clear, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't want to get into a huge like debate over verse by verse. But is it possible? <laughs> That's okay. Is it possible that you know that 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 verse about you know being able to to whip your wife with a th- a switch that's no bigger than your thumb that the that anything about lying with another man could go the way of that verse? Is that possible? There is there's a possibility for that. Yeah. I mean, again, the word of God is irrefutable to me. You know, you can't you can't go against the word of God. Beating your beating your children and and your. Yeah, but that's that's back in (laughs) that's back in the law. That's back when before grace came out of the scene, before Jesus came out of the scene. So there was like 600 and some odd laws that these people had to follow in order to appease God. Um the 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 idea of a husband and wife was was way 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 before that that was back in the garden of eden as you well know between adam and eve so that that was never really something that god said this is a law it's just by design that that's the way that it, that it is people try to corrupt it and they try to make make rules and make things make it more difficult i think for everybody um but the old testament the switch and the thumb and the burying of an adulterous woman up to her neck and then stoning her to death and all the things the atrocities things like that that's not part of the church that i know at least the church that i that i believe in the god that i believe in today but the things that were before the law um yeah those things are still in force you know he's he's still pretty serious about certain things and i believe you know we just need to follow suit and follow those yeah all right well next again topic. not judgmental <laughs> not holding not- um, no i i appreciate that and i and i just think that i just oh, that's that's one of the real sticking points for me in, in christianity is that it's just I, if if god creates somebody who's homosexual how right. can he say then you can't have you can't you can't enjoy the same love and fulfillment and family that straight people get? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people would say that God created me a drug addict, mm-hmm. um, in which there was this disease that I had, and I had this propensity towards leaning a certain particular way. You know, and so how do I? You know, is it fair that I have to go through life not using drugs because I'm a drug addict? Well. The answer to the question is, it doesn't really matter if it's fair or not. It's really what's, what's, you know, what's better for, for me as a person. You know, I, I just think that, um, and I, I battle with it too, because I, I have men and women that I talk to and they just say, I just feel I was born this way. Mm-hmm. And 
I can identify to a point because of my addiction. And, you know, the, yeah, the only I way that I can compare addiction to, to same sex, okay. to, being, to being gay, because that, that puts a value judgment on it that I, I don't know. I, yeah, it seems to, I think we have to agree to disagree on that one, but, um, okay. um, so, so I want you to, um, I, are you still okay on time? Cause I've already kept you 10 minutes longer than I said I would. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, cool. I want you to tell me what is the best and worst parts of your job. Of being a pastor, mm-hmm. um, having difficult convers having conversations like this is the worst. <laughs> <don't you? laughs> Good answer. <laughs> that, because there are a lot of questions. There are there are people have done really bad things in the name of God. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, guys like me, well, you know, again, I'm not the star Christian either. But what what's happened as a result of that is we've the church has offended a bunch of people, and out of that offense, people have risen up and they've um, they've just said, you know, I don't want any part of that God. Just like I said when I was addicted to drugs and they did certain things that I didn't agree with. So the the conversations that we have like this, the, the worst part, I don't know if there's a worst part necessarily. The, the difficult parts are going to the hospital and having to look at a mom who has a four-year-old boy that just got hit by a car. And she looks at me and she says, what, what do we do? I mean, what do you say to that? There's, there's really nothing you can say to that. I mean, you can't say, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, drunk driver rules the world because God didn't stop it. I don't think there's any comfort in saying that at all. Um, so those, those are the difficult parts. Uh, the best parts, there's a lot of best parts. The best parts are watching people break free from addiction when you can assist and help them. The best parts are watching people um, walk in victory over, you know, any other type of habit maybe that they found themselves in. The best parts are watching people serve one another and love one another, regardless of their race or whether or not they take a bus and they end up walking to our church and they don't smell the greatest in the world, mm-hmm. but people hugging them and telling them that they love them. You know, the best part is watching uh, a worship band that has black, white, Hispanic people, um, Caucasian people in, in the band that we have at our church, you know, that maybe a couple of them are going to go out that afternoon and you know, spend some time in a pub. It, that's the best part to me because it's this idea that I think that God really is after, which is, you know, you love people into the kingdom. You don't force them. And if we can just continue to remember that, if I can continue to remember that, I think that's really what what is the best uh, part of my job. Um, last question. How do yep. you define success? What does that word mean to you? And are you there yet? That's a great question. I think, you know, success to me, let me me rephrase that. I feel, I feel success is contingent upon what you choose to do every single day. Because my successful day yesterday and what I chose to do yesterday is not the same as what I would say would be a successful day today. You know, today I think I've had a successful day. I've talked to you. And it's 
to me right now where I'm sitting, I feel pretty successful. Mm. I try not to put a lot of expectations uh, upon myself, maybe unrealistic expectations. Instead, what I try to do is kind of accept things as like, I have a plan, obviously. I, I make plans and I have goals that I want to set, but I'm always willing to kind of let those fall by the wayside if something else comes up. Am I am I satisfied? Yeah, I think I am today. I am satisfied in, in what I'm doing and the person that you know I've chosen to become. I've got a beautiful wife, got a son and a daughter, and then a baby girl that we just adopted last summer. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, we. <laughs> it's a whole other story, Darby. <laughs> we can maybe talk about that next time. <laughs> but, yeah, you're doing this whole we thing all over again, aren't you? Yeah, we are. But, you know, what are you supposed to say when you go over to pray with a girl who's pregnant and the father is, she doesn't know who the father is, and you pray with her. And at the end of the prayer, she looks at you and says, will you adopt my baby? And what are you supposed to say to that? You know, well, the Bible says pure and undefiled religion is this than to help orphans and widows in their time of despair. And so what do you do? You say yes, because. That's what the Bible says you're supposed to say. Yeah, it doesn't matter I, how you feel. I have to say, you know? say, I would hold you guys up as – so, again, now you're talking to somebody who's super pro-choice. But I would hold you up as a – I don't like the word pro-life, but some, someone who's, who's – again, I, would, I, assume, I assume you're not in favor of abortion. But very, very few people who are against abortion would step up and adopt that baby. And I find that admirable. Thank you. So you talk about like walking well, the walk and not just talking the talk. That's walking the walk. Well, it's it's so easy to curse the darkness instead of bringing light. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to curse the darkness. Well, just want to just bring some light with you. Bring the be the answer yeah. to the problems that you're railing against. You know, that's why God gave you this life is to go out and be the answer and and whether or not you believe in like like you whether or not you believe in a god or not darby he's given you know or anybody else he's given you the power to be the answer let somebody breathe easier because of you today what a what a great idea and by doing that believe it or not you're actually doing exactly what you know what the bible says love your neighbor as yourself I think that's a really wow. good uh, spot to stop. Yeah, I bet you're really, so, really good at this job. Well, I don't know. I mean, I I enjoy it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I bet. Yeah, I bet you give a hell of a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> that's play on words. Very funny. <laughs> I love it. All right, my dear. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I will let you know when it's um, listenable. And that's going to do it for another edition of How They Did It. Remember, you can support the show by subscribing to us on iTunes, by leaving us ratings, comments, reviews. All those things help other people find out about the show. And at the very least, if you're enjoying the show, please tell your friends. Share this stuff on social media. And speaking of social media, you can follow me at Facebook.com slash Darby or on Twitter at Darby W. How They Did It is produced in partnership with Pregame Magazine. To hear more from the fine folks at Pregame, visit PregameMagazine.com. Our music is provided by Girls Like Bass. Hear more of them at girlslikebass.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.